being with the little girl. Father, we come to you tonight again grateful for the many mercies you show us. We're mindful that everything that we are is to be depends upon you and your blessing. That indeed in you we live and move and have our very being. We thank you that you sustain our lives and that you give us so many things to be cheerful and grateful about. We thank you above all that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is a faithful mediator between you and us. One who came into this world, voluntarily laid down his life for us, and took it up again in power as he was raised from the dead, and now being ascended on high, ever lives to make intercession for us. We thank you for the intercession of our Savior, as we know that we cannot come into your presence apart from his holy intercession. We thank you that he lives to make that intercession, mindful of our needs, ever willing to hear our prayers, to be compassionate toward us, indeed someone who knows what it is to be tempted at every point and yet without sin. So we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would help us to glorify his name and be faithful to his word as we study more about him during this time this evening. Bless us all that we might be strengthened in the Christian faith, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know it'll seem a little strange, but we're in the book of Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 7, and I'll try to do a little bit of review with you. And... Uh, about the fourth verse of chapter 7, we'll get back into a detailed study of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Who wrote the book of Hebrews, Doug? Was it Paul? We know that it was not Paul, although that's in a popular thesis for a long time in the Christian church because the author says that he is not part of that company that saw the Savior. And so um, we know that it would not, Paul would never make that kind of claim. He defends his apostolic authority on the basis that he saw Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. But it's someone who knew Timothy. Timothy is mentioned as a close associate. And it's someone who is obviously Jewish and converted to Christianity, a second generation Christian. And the theme of the epistle, the superiority of Christ over everything that the Old Covenant had to offer. The reason why that theme was an important one to pursue is something we might take for granted from our perspective in our day and age, given years and years and years in the Christian church, but in that day it was a real threat that Jews were being tempted to fall back into Judaism, perhaps a particular form of Judaism that was promoted by the Dead Sea community. Uh, we can't say for certain, but there are certain themes here that we now know from the Dead Sea Scrolls where um, the themes in this book are counteracting teachings of the Dead Sea community, it would appear. But anyway, for one reason or another, these Jews were having a temptation to give up their Christianity um, to kind of fall back into the, uh, uh, the woodwork, if you will, and not be so noticeable to the Roman authorities and so forth. We do know that the recipients of this epistle have suffered a great deal already. It says that they have cheerfully allowed the despoiling of their property. 
well, I mean, that verse, when we get to it, in itself is worthy of comment, that they might be willing to praise God that they, they were worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. But there are problems within the community. Some are apostatizing. There are some theological difficulties. And so the author writes to not only point out the superiority of Christ, but to stir them up so that they will not stagnate in their Christian faith, to show them the need for progressive sanctification. So chapter 1 shows the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament prophets and over the angels. In chapter 2, continuation of the theme is superiority of Christ to the angels. And then chapter 3 moves on to the superiority of Christ to Moses. And now the first lengthy excursus by the author into a warning against unbelief using the example of pressing into the promised land from the Old Testament as an illustration of how we as Christians need to press on to enter into God's rest. Then in chapter, at the end of 4 and into 5, he begins talking about the high priesthood of Christ and how he was made perfect through suffering. And the author, at the end of 5, says that he'd like to liken Christ to Melchizedek, but now the second excursus. He says, but I can't because you've become dull of hearing. So having brought up the subject of Melchizedek in verse 10 of chapter 5, all the way from 11 down through the 6th chapter, he has what is perhaps the most stringent New Testament warning against apostasy, where he talks about those who are impossible to be renewed unto repentance because they have turned so adamantly against the Christian faith. And yet, the reassurance at the end of chapter 6 is that since God is a covenant-keeping God, our assurance of salvation rests upon his, upon his promise and the oath that he took to back up his promise. We have strong encouragement, the author says, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And then we come to chapter 7, which is what we studied um, at, in some detail before I got taken out of commission. Chapter 7 now returns to the priesthood of Melchizedek, which was brought up only uh, in a passing way in chapter 5. In chapter 7, we read of this Melchizedek, and let me now begin our scripture reading for the evening. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham divided a tenth part of all, being first by interpretation king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest forever. Now consider how great this man was unto whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth out of the chief spoils, and they indeed of the sons of Levi that received the priest's office have commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, through the, though these have come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not counted from them hath taken tithes of Abraham and hath blessed him that hath the promises. So without any dispute, the less is blessed by the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but they are one of whom it is witness that he lives. And so to say, through Abraham, even Levi, who receives tithes, hath paid tithes. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. 
Now, if there was perfection through the Levitical priesthood, for under it half the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be reckoned after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are said belongeth to another tribe from which no man hath given attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord hath sprung out of Judah, as to which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priests. And what we say is yet more abundantly evident, if after the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest, who has been made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For it is witness of him, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For there is a disannulling of a foregoing commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect, and a bringing in thereupon of a better hope through which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as it is not without the taking of an oath, for they indeed have been made priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him that saith of him, The Lord swear and will not repent himself, thou art a priest forever. By so much also hath Jesus become the surety of a better covenant. And they indeed have been made priests, many in number, because that by death they are hindered from continuing. But he, because he abideth forever, hath his priesthood unchangeable. Wherefore also he is able to save to the uttermost them that draw nigh unto God through him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. And that's part of the reading of God's word. What a beautiful passage. There's more theology than I'm capable of expounding there. I hope that you will go home and study it on your own and get a couple of good commentaries. There's just so much to learn from it. I'm going to begin at the fourth verse. Um, and just take for granted that you remember what I argued previously about Melchizedek. I don't see any way around the conclusion that Melchizedek was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in history, that he was not simply a king of the city called Salem, now called Jerusalem, that because no genealogy is mentioned about him, we can draw the conclusion, well, then he's like Christ, he's eternal. You see, the things that are said of Melchizedek are just too strong. He has the power of an endless life. He has a priesthood forever, and so forth. Um, and after all, he is king of righteousness, king of peace, just as Jesus is the Lord our righteousness, and he is the prince of peace. So I believe that this is, in fact, Jesus operating before his incarnation in history in a miraculous way. But let's now pick up the argument at verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth out of the chief spoils. Melchizedek is being set forth here as someone who is greater than Abraham. Abraham the patriarch. Why is Abraham called the patriarch? Why is he called the father? Exactly. He's the ancestral founder of the Jewish race. And the Jews accorded to Abraham absolute primacy and honor. He was the father of their race, the father of their religion. And in fact, the Jews prided themselves 
that they were children of Abraham. Can I give you a few examples of that? Look at John, the 8th chapter, verse 33. Kent, I'll ask you to read that. And uh, Scott, if you'll look up Matthew 3, 9. And Terry, Philippians 3, verses 4 and 5. But first of all, John, the 8th chapter, verse 33. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye be made free? Now, the interesting the way the Jews incorporate this in the retort to Jesus. Jesus says that he can set them free. They say, listen, we're Abraham's children. We've never been in bondage to any man, which is an outright mistake. I mean, they were in exile in Babylon, and uh, they uh, were in Egypt after the calling of Abraham and so forth. So they have been in bondage to him. But anyway, they had this pride, you know, that said, we have always been free because we're Abraham's children. So you see the place Abraham has there. I mean, that gets incorporated in this retort to Jesus as a badge of honor. Matthew 3 9. Okay, Jesus now responding again to Jewish pride says, Don't begin to say inside yourself what he knew they would tend to do. They say, Yeah, but wait a minute, we're Abraham's children, we're special. And, of course, the great put-down there is, look, if God wants, he can make the stones cry out. He doesn't need you. <laughs> Just remember that next time you get the idea that you're something important, God could use stones as well as he could use you. That's just how sovereign and powerful God is. He's just merciful that he uses you. But the Jews thought of themselves as Abraham's children, and that's the point of this reference in Philippians 3, verses 4 and 5. So Paul says, see, he's not going to actually pride himself. He's going to say, I count all these things that done, as a matter of fact. But he says, if anyone had reason to be proud, I have reason to be proud. I'm a child of Abraham. In fact, I'm, I'm well advanced in the Jewish faith. So the Jews prided themselves in Abraham, and that background helps us to see the significance of what the author is doing in verse 4. He says, Consider how great Melchizedek was, under whom Abraham the patriarch died. See, if you think Abraham's great, Melchizedek is what? Much greater. All four theory arguments, right? An argument to the greatest. Two ways in which Melchizedek is seen as superior to Abraham. First of all, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. The lesser tithes to the greater. You may have noticed that. That the Church of Jesus Christ, the Bride of Christ, does not tithe to its members. They tithe to the Savior. So, later on when the author says, without dispute, such and such and such and such, you can see that he's resting on things that should be perfectly clear to people. Shouldn't really be negotiable or disputable points. Now, Kisabek's greater because he received tithes from Abraham, but secondly, because he bestowed a blessing upon Abraham. And yeah, verse 7 now. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And so Melchizedek is obviously superior to Abraham 
And yet Abraham held the highest esteem among the Jews. This is not only good theological reasoning, it's good persuasive reasoning. The author is looking at his audience and he's saying, now I know the way they think. If I can demonstrate to them that given their premises, they must be driven to my conclusion, see how effective that would be. He says, okay, you think well of Abraham? Consider this, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. And Jesus Christ, priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is superior to Abraham. And I, I do think it's interesting how the author says in verse 7, these things are beyond dispute, one way of translating that. Without any question. What other, what other ways do you have that translated? Without doubt, indisputably. Without contradiction. Doug, can you tell me, um, I know the answer, but I think it would be helpful for everyone. What in modern philosophy is supposed to be beyond doubt? Only the truths of logic and what's an analytical statement? See, there are people who will tell us the only thing you can know as being completely beyond doubt is certain are things like a bachelor's and unmarried male, which just tells you the way we use the term, or a law of logic, the red barn is red. You know, those things are beyond doubt. But any substantive matter about life in the world, anything that we would observe, cannot be beyond dispute. The Bible is not caught up in that mentality at all, is it? Because here we say, beyond dispute, something which the author, as a matter of fact, is disputing with his reader, the superiority of Jesus Christ. But he's resting on a premise here, which he says, even though it has nothing to do with the definition of a term or a law of logic, it is something that's beyond question. That may be mainly for Doug's benefit, I point that out. But you're going to run into people in college and college-educated philosophers who will keep throwing that at you. Only analytical statements, only things that are true by definition or by the laws of logic, are indisputable. But a Christian doesn't believe that. I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and I believe that firmly. As Peter declared it on the day of Pentecost, let all the house of Israel know without doubt with full assurance that Jesus rose from the dead. Our outlook on life as Christians is different than the modern philosophical perception there. Our assurance, our bedrock confidence is in what God says first and foremost. And that means, to be very honest with you, that I even trust the word of God more than I trust the application of the laws of logic. When somebody tells me, and, and may even convince me on outward appearance, the laws of logic you know, demand something here that's contrary to my Christian conviction, I say, well, let God be true, the law men are liars. There's something mistaken which you're doing here because the proper understanding of logic would never lead to that kind of conclusion. So though I don't know what the answer is and how to resolve it, I do know that I'm going to resolve the tension to stand on the Word of God and work on your problem rather than to give up the Word of God and say that your problem's convinced me. And that's because what I think is beyond dispute is based upon my presuppositions, not upon yours. Well, anyway, so a little lesson about apologetics from just that one adverb in the Greek. Doubtless, he says, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Okay, so the inference to be drawn from what we've been looking at is that Melchizedek is superior to whom? to Abraham, but the argument goes beyond that. Abraham's just a passing 
phase of the argument. If he's superior to Abraham, then he's necessarily superior to... No, it's more particular than that. The law? Well, the law, but specifically, who receives tithe? Levi and the Levites. And since Levi and the Levites were in the loins of Abraham, they are less than their father. And if Abraham is less than Melchizedek, then who can do this law of transition here? If A is greater than B, and B is greater than C, then A is greater than C, right? Okay, so you have Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, greater, Abraham is greater than Levi, therefore Melchizedek is greater than Levi and the Levites. That's the point the author is trying to draw, and he does it very well. In fact, Melchizedek is superior to everything represented by Abraham and the Levitical priests. Um, though some of you have taken Greek from Doug or others, and so you may appreciate this observation. In this paragraph, those verbs that refer to Melchizedek are put in the perfect tense. They wouldn't have to be, but the implication is here's something that's been accomplished in history and establishes something of continuing significance. What we read is that Melchizedek, um, that Abraham, I'm hard, I'll get it right. Melchizedek has received tithes, perfect tense. Melchizedek has blessed Abraham. And that Levi has paid tithes. Now all of those, you see, are put in the perfect tense indicating that it was accomplished, but there's a significance that carries on from that. That, that establishes a kind of permanent relationship, a permanent relationship of superior to inferior in all of these transactions. And the, the author, you have to remember, is not concerned simply that we see how Melchizedek is superior to Abraham and therefore to the Levitical priest. If you remember who Melchizedek is, or on another interpretation, who Melchizedek foreshadows, the point is that Jesus is superior to Abraham. Jesus is superior to Levi. It's worth noting in passing here the concept of family solidarity. Levi is considered in Abraham, both seminally and representatively. What do I mean seminally he was in Abraham? Yeah, I mean that literally. He was in the semen of Abraham. That it was the seed, the physical seed of Abraham, that's passed on that gives life to Levi and of course to, to his sons as well. But Levi is also represented in Abraham, his ancestor. Now that line of thinking is also somewhat contrary to modern legal conceptions. Not only is the notion of what's indisputable contrary to our views of logic and philosophy today, but this idea of family solidarity does not get a lot of um, favorable press and is not observed in the courts nowadays. Can you tell me another place in the Bible where we see that concept of family solidarity? Yeah. Exactly. And was I in Adam when he sinned? Was I in him seminally or representatively? Everyone see the point there? I'm not only the physical offspring of Adam by many, many, many generations, but I was also represented by Adam. We see that in Romans 5.12, 1 
We also see in 1 Corinthians 15.22, for those of you who are taking notes and want to do a little background study on it. But now a question comes up. Didn't Christ, who was in the loins of Abraham, likewise pay tithes to Melchizedek? What if somebody were to try to defeat the argument by saying, well, yeah, Levi was in the loins of Abraham, but Jesus was in the loins of Abraham, and therefore Jesus is inferior to Melchizedek. I'm sorry? Oh, have we become docetists, Pat? Well, I didn't, I thought that um, he was followed by spirit. Well, did Jesus have a true human nature? Mm-hmm. Where did that human nature come from? Was he genuinely the son of Abraham as to his human nature? So the human nature of Jesus is in fact seminally and representatively in Abraham. But I also gave you the answer to the argument. Only the human nature of Jesus was in Abraham. Not the divine nature of Jesus. The God-man is certainly superior to Abraham if not for no other reason that he's the God-man. He's not just man, the son of Abraham. There's something else that can be said, and that's that if you remember who Melchizedek was, then Jesus, speaking representatively and seminally, Jesus, as he tithed through Abraham, was tithing to whom? To himself. And then thirdly, Christ's human descent from Abraham which is mentioned, by the way, in Hebrews 2.16. I should have brought that up in answering Pat, I guess. For verily not the angels does he give help, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. That Christ's human descent from Abraham as the seed of Abraham had no association with the tribe of Levi in particular, but rather with the tribe of Judah, which is what the argument's going to go on to point out. So that there is no special impinging upon the prerogatives of Jesus being in the loins of Abraham because the author is looking specifically at the relationship of Levi to Melchizedek, not all of the sons of Abraham to Melchizedek. So those three considerations, I think, would have been legitimate answers to any Jew who would have said, you've refuted yourself here. You've actually shown the inferiority of Jesus. Did I lose anybody in that? Did you pass? Yes. And the reason I say that is because, in a sense, what you're asking is, is any human nature inferior to a divine nature? And the answer would have to be yes, wouldn't it? Anything creaturely is inferior to the Creator. And the ultimate appearance is not an incarnation in the sense of all of us. How so? Well, Oh, I think I understand your question, but it, by true incarnation, you mean not a permanent incarnation. Yeah. And I was reading you as 
There was only the appearance of a physical body. It wasn't a yeah, true no, incarnos. I don't want to say it's not a physical body, but I would, I would do a redirect that no physical is not truly a race of man. True. Yeah, well, to use the language of the author, he didn't have a father or mother. Yeah. And that is what it says. Without father and mother, and what that means is he appears in history miraculously. Yeah. I just think I, the idea of two incarnations that across my mind, I'm about that No, you are correct that it was not a permanent incarnation. As every theophany or Christophany of the Old Testament, it was momentary. Momentary may have the wrong connotation. It doesn't mean just like fleeting, but I mean, that it was not forever. And this is something that we need to realize. Jesus is incarnate forever. When he took on human flesh, he took it on not just for a short period of time, then got rid of that human body and went back to heaven. He is now in heaven interceding for us in his human nature with a physical body. Glorified physical body, to be sure, because it's resurrected. But Jesus is not just some kind of free-floating spirit. He is a human forever now. At Christmas, that's worthy of meditation, that God could have come, and when you think about it, if we were writing the script, God could have come and said, well, for a while I'll put on this ugly human nature and clean up the mess that sinners have created, but then of course I'm going to get rid of that. When God came to align himself with his people, he did so forever. Christ's human nature will always be his. Um, that Jesus is God and man forever. Uh, well, you catch me off guard. There are proof texts that we use with that, but I'd have to look some of them up for you. Uh, when he was raised from the dead, he was raised as a human nature and he ascended on high as a human nature. That in itself, just the storyline, would lead you to that conclusion, but they're also theological, categorical theological remarks to that effect. Well, that would be an indirect theological argument, but if he gave up his human nature, he couldn't be a perfect mediator. That's a good argument. But I think there's even more explicit, direct statements to the, to the point. Um, as I recall, we would also see this in the use, again, of the perfect tense, having to do with his inclination becoming human, you know, having permanent consequences and all that. But I'll be glad to look at some things and give it to you. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That his his resurrected body being what it is, you would you would tend to draw that from the storyline. Someone could say, well, yeah, until he ascended, but then he kind of got rid of that human nature. So we want to go a little beyond that. But I want to talk about tithing. Kind of a unpopular subject in some circles, especially in Orange County Christianity. Uh, some people think that if we talk about tithing and require tithing in our church, that we're being legalist. And so the first question I have for you is, uh, the law of tithing, does that begin with the Mosaic Law? Apparently not. And those, even if you have held to a, a semi-dispensational understanding of our relationship to the Old Testament, Today, we are supposed to be followers, if not of Moses, of whom? Well, but who's the father of the faithful from the Old Testament? Abraham. There are those who want to jump over the Mosaic Covenant 
to the Abrahamic covenant and say, well, that's really the New Testament approach to things. Why? I think you know I've written a little bit on the subject. I don't buy this contrast between Abraham and Moses at all. But even if I did buy it, and I'll grant that to the opponent momentarily, even if I said, okay, forget Moses, Abraham is the father of the faithful, in whose steps we are to follow, Paul says, and Abraham tithes. I want to suggest to you that if Abraham tithes, even before God laid it down explicitly in the Mosaic Law, that general revelation tells us that we are supposed to tithe. And it's that strong an ethical requirement. Now, looking at the Mosaic version of the tithing law, however, in Numbers 18, one of many places we read about it, tithes of everything, whether of crops or of livestock, were to be paid to the Levites. So that when you brought in your crops, a tenth of your crops, if you brought in a hundred bushels, ten bushels of your apples, were to go to the Levites. Uh, if, if your flock happened to give birth to ten new spheres, then you were to give one of them to the Levites. That's how the Levites lived. They did not go out and grow their own. They had it given to them for the religious service that they offered. The priestly office belonged to the Aaronic family of the Levites. I'm going to go slow here. Sometimes we don't think in the right categories. Not all the Levites were priests in the uh, ritual sense. Only the family of Aaron, among all the Levites, performed priestly service at the tabernacle and later at the temple. Where did the priests receive their support? They were supported by the Levites, the general tribe. So all of Israel ties to the Levites the Levites tithe to the priests. Follow me? So what percent did the priests get of all the increase of Israel? One percent. Very good. Ten goes to the Levites in general. A tenth of the ten goes to the priests in particular. You read about that in Numbers 3 and Numbers 18 and uh, Nehemiah 10 if you want to do some more homework tonight. But now, does it seem to you that verse 5 of Hebrews 7 is a little imprecise then? And they indeed of the sons of Levi that received the priest office have commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. Some people have tried to fault that verse by saying, in fact, the priests don't take tithes of the people. They take a tithe from the Levites, which is to say 1% from the people indirectly rather than 10% directly from the people. Well, again, I'm going to defend the biblical way of speaking here. As a matter of fact, the priests did receive their own tithe of the tithes indirectly from the people through the Levites in general. And I don't think that hearers of this or the readers of this would have been thrown by his generalizing rather than drawing the distinction between Levites and priests as he could have. And the argument does countenance an intermediary step in that Levi, rather than Aaron specifically, is said to receive tithes in verse 9. It's the Levites then who receive tithes, rather than Aaron who receives tithes. They often know what he's talking about. 
And the thrust of the argument, finally, is not at all effective, since he shows that everything Levitical is inferior to whatever is of the order of Melchizedek. Everything Levitical, and if the Aaronic priesthood is Levitical, then it's inferior to the Melchizedekan priesthood as well. Verse 8, And here men that die receive tithes, that they're one of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Okay. With respect to the Levitical priests, men who were mortal received tithes. But in the case of Melchizedek, by contrast, now what does that verse mean? I mean, if language has meaning, that verse means that Melchizedek doesn't die. Again, I don't see how we can get around the Christophany interpretation. Melchizedek receives tithes as one who does not die, as someone who is immortal. It was the Jewish understanding that Melchizedek was an eternal figure who did not die. We see that reflected in Psalm 110, verse 4, which we're going to be looking up in a moment, that um, as we read, there thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was eternally a priest. So it was the fact that he did not die that explains the absence of any mention of his death in the book of Genesis. I don't think we would draw the inference um, that other Old Testament characters whose death is not mentioned were eternal figures. And yet the author does that here. The author says, no mention of him dying is eternal. But I mean, there's no mention of other people dying either. But we don't draw the conclusion they are eternal. So this is He's not following some kind of laws uh, of theological inference here. He is obviously resting upon a particular historical fact, which is that Melchizedek did not die. Okay, now verses 11 to 14. Now if there was perfection through the Levitical priesthood, for under it half the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be reckoned after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. You look down at verse 17, you'll notice that the author is preparing to make reference to the only other mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Genesis and only one other place, Psalm 110. And there, in Psalm 110, we learn that there is an order of priesthood named for Melchizedek, something that's not mentioned in the Genesis narrative at all. Now, you see, that's fascinating. I'd love to write a paper just on that, the significance of the fact that Genesis does not teach an order of priesthood after Melchizedek. You know what I mean by an order of priesthood? An institution of priests like Melchizedek. You don't see anything, even hinting at that in Genesis, but by the time David writes Psalm 110, Jewish theology has developed sufficiently that a passing reference is made to the order of Melchizedek. For any special revelation that we don't have in the Bible, I'm not sure. I'm not going to draw that conclusion. But we do know there's theological development from Genesis to Psalms, from the days that Moses wrote and the day in which David wrote. Because, obviously, you can't get that from the text of Genesis. Right? Uh, does that mean that the people that would be after the order of Melchizedek would have the same 
It's kind of like, you know, the children's toy where you have one little barrel, a small one inside and another one, which is inside another one, which is inside another one. And so that one little word is the smallest one in there, but as you start looking at, you know, what it's contained in, uh, it tells you a lot theologically. Now the Jews not only prided themselves in being possessors of the law of uh, being the seed of Abraham, pardon me for reading my notes wrong, they not only prided themselves in being the seed of Abraham, they prided themselves in being possessors of the law, didn't they? Uh, John, would you read for us Romans 2.17 on that point? probably enough. What, what Paul is setting up is, now you Jews in your pride, notice that you boast that you're a Jew, and what about the law? You rely on the law. The Jews, you see, thought they were a special people, not only because they were the children of Abraham, but because God had given them the law. Why is the author going to have, in my translation, in verse 11 we read, for under it half the people received the law, that's put in parentheses. Well, why does the author feel the need to introduce this otherwise unnecessary thought in, even in parentheses? Why does the author bring up this question of the law? Well, the conclusion he's going to draw is that Jesus has a superior priesthood of Melchizedek. If you were a Jew, wouldn't you be inclined to say that violates the law? Wouldn't you be inclined to say, well, your argument looks interesting, but as a matter of fact, the law says right here, priests have to be Levitical. And so the author needs to now start incorporating how the law may not be used against him in the argument. So if there was perfection through the Levitical priesthood, and remember it, under it, half the people received the law. He's going to set this up because in the next verse he says, for the priesthood being changed, there was made of necessity a change also of the law. <coughs> Some people have thought that that verse is very much an embarrassment to people holding the theonomic thesis of the continuity of the law. Because the author here is bold to say the law has been changed then. Now, is that an embarrassment to the theonomic thesis, though, the continuity of the law? Yeah, well, that's a good answer. It, it, it's only an embarrassment if you don't understand what the theonomic position is. Because does the theonomic position say there are no changes possible in the law of God? No. That's right. It's a methodological point. We're not claiming the law never changes. We're saying we don't have the right to change it. Only God can change the law. The lawgiver can do with his law what he wants. No one has any dispute with that. And we believe, as a matter of fact, that God has changed the law in many ways gloriously. Can anyone rehearse for me ways in which the law has changed, um, say, from by the standard? Remember? Yeah, the superiority of the New Testament order over the Old Testament shadows, right? We don't believe the sacrificial laws are kept in the same way today. How else has the law changed? Baptism? Uh, that would be part of the shadows of the Old Testament, another illustration. Separation laws. We don't have to avoid pork and shrimp.
instruments and so forth today. Well, what I say in my book is the, the new covenant is superior in glory. Nothing in the law, in fact, the author here is going to say, I obviously didn't plan this that well, I thought I'd get to it. In verse 19, the law made nothing perfect, but a bringing in thereupon of a better hope through which we draw nigh unto God. The law made nothing perfect, but the new covenant brings a better hope. Well, that's superiority over the law, no doubt about it. The law could not save. It could only look ahead to it. So there's a greater glory. There's also a greater power in, in the new covenant. We now have the law written on our hearts and the Holy Spirit to help us keep that law so that what was once external and condemnatory of us becomes internal and enlivening to us. We have greater power of sanctification in the new covenant. The law supersedes the old covenant shadows, I say in the book, which is what we even talked about, sacrificial system, priesthood, uh, circumcision, what have you. And then fourthly, I argue that the new covenant is superior because it brings a greater finality. The law always had supplements, didn't it? And the law was greatly perverted and misunderstood. In the new covenant, we reach a point where God ceases to give more revelation. We don't have to worry about more supplements being given. And Jesus, when he came, corrected the distortions and external um, perversions of the law of the Pharisees. So we have, not only in his teaching, but more particularly in his life, the clear expression of what the law means. So that we can say, on the one hand, obey the Mosaic law, but we could equally say, follow the example of Jesus. Because in his life, we see the law put into expression in a way the Jews didn't um, have the privilege of seeing. So, theonomists are not against the idea of changes in the law. There are differences between Old Covenant and New Covenant. But we're very much against the idea of introducing those differences when God hasn't said so. Yes, Ken. I think one problem I've found discussing theonomy with other Christians is that when they're, and they aren't theonomists, they'll, they'll say, um, well, yeah, we should follow the example of Christ because he, he perfectly obeyed the law. And so we should obey the law too because we um, that is our definition of sin. But yet, when you talk about a civil enactment of the law, and in other words, like making it illegal to be a homosexual or something like that, then for some reason they say, well, Christ never... Uh, you know, it was never an example of that, and we could bring up all these little points where Christ was like the woman and caught in adultery and a bunch of other, I mean, it just goes on to a big long chain of events, and then they say, well, you just interpret differently. The argument being, we should follow the example of Christ, but only on those points where we have definite revelation of what he did or said. Well, I don't think it would take a, a course in logic or theology to be able to refute that line of thinking. How much do we really know about what Jesus did and said? Do we know that he ever sat in a room studying the Bible like we're doing tonight? Well, if we follow the example of Jesus, and we can only do what we know positively about what Jesus did, then we shouldn't be doing this. As far as I know, Jesus never wore blue socks. I guess I shouldn't wear blue socks. You see what I mean? That, in a sense, you just stand back and say, now look at the straight jacket you've put on ethics here. You can't possibly mean that. I mean, so many absurd conclusions come from it. I want you to see something else about this text. The author says that when the priesthood is changed, there is made a necessity of change of the law. Does he mean by that that the whole regime of the law gets thrown out? I've seen some people interpret it that way. 
they've interpreted it saying, if any change is made touching the priesthood, then everything, the whole system of law God gave, is invalidated. Or if you will, the whole regime, the right itself, the law itself, is categorically uh, displaced. We'll read this in context. What kind of change in the law is he talking about, Doug? Well, he's talking about the category of ceremonial law. We talked, in a sense, about that, saying, well, that's no embarrassment. We believe the ceremonial law has been changed. But I want to point out something further. He doesn't even talk about the whole ceremonial law. He's only talking about one law. He's not talking about a system of law. He's not talking about a category of law. He's talking about one law. The demand that the priest be of the order of Levi, or from the family of Levi, exactly. And you know that's what he means if you'll read it in context. The very next verse says, For he of whom these things were said belongs to another tribe from which no man has given attendance at the altar. For it is evident our Lord has sprung out of Judah, as to which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priests. So Moses spoke about the priest having to be of the Levitical tribe. Jesus sprung from Judah. And what he's saying is, obviously, there is a change in that requirement. God accepts a priesthood that is not Levitical. And so, I just want to add that, that not only are we not embarrassed by this verse because it's ceremonial and we grant ceremonial changes, but the, but the people who say that should be embarrassed if they haven't read it in context, because it's not even the whole ceremonial law, really. The author's only talking about one ceremonial law, or however you want to count him. He's talking about a narrow domain of the ceremonial law when he says the Levitical requirements have been changed. I'd like to quote an author who is by no means a theonomist. In fact, I think he would uh, be probably very uncomfortably being classed with theonomist, uh, Philip Edgeman Hughes, in his fine commentary on the book of Hebrews, writes, and I quote, the introduction of a new and different order of priesthood necessitates the setting aside of the law insofar as its prescriptions for the regulation of the old priesthood and its ministry are concerned. And so someone who doesn't have an axe to grind, or if anything has an axe to grind against our approach to the law, has to admit that. If you look at the text, it's only setting aside the law insofar as the Levitical requirement is uh, spoken of here. Now, what was the problem with the Levitical priesthood? Two things. One, the priests themselves were sinners, and thus they were unable to offer an adequate and perfect sacrifice. Look at verse 27, if we can skip down a bit. Speaking of the high priesthood of Jesus, who needs not daily like those priests, or those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Again, if the Jews had just understood the procedures of the old covenant order, they should have been able to foresee the coming of Jesus as the high priest. Because the fact that the high priest had to first offer a sacrifice for his sins before he was in a position then to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people showed the inadequacy of that priesthood. Secondly, the author says, the animal sacrifices offered by the priest were never an adequate replacement or substitute for the human sinner. For the blood of bulls and goats is never adequate to stand in the place of the human life. And I, I think that's just common sense, isn't it? When God told the Jews, sacrifice a bull or a goat or uh, whatever it may be in the place of your sins, they should have said, 
Well, a bull or a goat's not a human being. That's not a perfect substitution. That's not an adequate. That's only, if you will, a temporary and therefore a foreshadowing of what God will finally accept. The book of Hebrews really encourages us with respect to things like the order of Melchizedek or the high priest first sacrificing for himself before sacrificing for the people or the inadequacy of bulls and goats. To look at the Old Testament and say, now shouldn't you have known these things? Shouldn't you have been able to see it coming? And the answer is yes, you should have. We know that the Jews acknowledged that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. Um, well, let's look quickly. I know we're a little over time, but if you'll give me a minute or two, I can finish this thought. Mark 12, verses 35 to 37. And Jesus answered and said, as he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. David himself called him Lord, and whence is he his son? And the common people heard him gladly. So Jesus knew that Psalm 110 would be understood in a messianic way, and he said, Pay attention to the wording of Psalm 110. This Messiah who is coming is the Lord. Anyway, knowing that Psalm 110 is interpreted messianically, the author here points out that it spoke of a great priestly figure, but one who was not of the order of Levi, not of the tribe of Levi. And how do you know that? Because Melchizedek was not Levitical. I mean, anybody who knows the history, the chronology, Levi hasn't even been born at the time of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is not a Levitical priest. Moreover, Psalm 110 speaks of the kingly character of this person. And the Jews would automatically associate kingship with what tribe? Judah. Exactly right. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and following, which I wish we could have had time to read, tells us of God's promise to David to set up a king upon his throne who will rule forever. Isaiah, the ninth chapter, says that the Messiah will come and will sit upon the throne of David forever. And so here's Melchizedek, who is a kingly figure, therefore of Judah, you would say, and certainly not a Levitical figure, because in Melchizedek's day there weren't any Levites. Verse 14 says, For it is evident that our Lord hath sprung out of Judah, as to which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priests. Uh, what I have in my notes here to pay some attention to, and I'll just be real brief about, is the language of sprung out of Judah, or I hope that, that's a little awkward, has arisen from the tribe of Judah. Do any of you have descended from the tribe of Judah? Yeah, some translations do that. Do you understand that the metaphor is exactly the opposite? To arise is not to descend. Now, the main thought is the same, that Jesus descended in terms of his genealogy from Judah. But there's a reason why the author doesn't use the metaphor of descent, but rather of arising, I believe. And that's because there are Old Testament messianic prophecies that speak of the rising of the Messiah. Um, and I guess the reason I'm dwelling on this is not just a technician's little nice insight. The author of Hebrews styled this argument very craftily. And I don't mean deceitfully, but I mean he worked over this 
And you can almost see him looking at, I could say descend, but if I say arise, that has linguistic tie-ins with such passages as Malachi 4.2. Real quickly, we'll look at that one, and I'll just tell you about the other ones. Malachi 4.2 says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his way. There there are passages that speak of the Messiah arising. Uh, Other ones, uh, Numbers 24.17, the star that arises. 2 Peter 1.19 refers to that, that Jesus is the bright and morning star that arises. And in other passages, the Messiah is raised up for David. He doesn't just descend from David, he's raised up for David. You see that in Isaiah 11.1 and in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, that there will arise a root out of the uh, shoot of Jesse. I mean, a shoot out of the root of Jesse. I'm sorry, get it backwards there. The point being that this language of arising has messianic overtones in the Old Testament. So I really appreciate reading the author of Hebrews. Not only does he write good Greek, I mean, he's very um, uh, well-versed in how to express himself in Greek, but it's obvious that he thought about how to express his arguments so that they would carry maximum weight. What have we learned tonight? Well, we've learned that the law does change in some ways, and that if you understood the whole law, including the whole Old Testament, you already would have anticipated that. In fact, if we did a careful reading of the Old Testament, we should have been able to anticipate much of the theology that the book of Hebrews is laying out for us. There is a continuity between Old and New Testament, a very precious theological continuity, and we have foreshadows and hints in the Old that we should be picking up on. We learn as well that the Jews were wrong to pride themselves in what was really an intermediary blessing, that they were sons of Abraham and recipients of the law. Far more important, they should have seen that the blessing was being related to Melchizedek, who was the king of righteousness and king of peace. That all of their blessing was inferior to Abraham's relationship, and therefore they shouldn't today be using the law or Abrahamic lineage as an argument against becoming Christians or remaining as Christians. Do we have things in our day that might tempt us to subordinate the importance of Jesus Christ? Well, we do. And the only application I want to make as we close tonight is, if you think about it, those things that would tempt us to put an inferior interpretation on Jesus and therefore maybe to be drawn away from the Christian faith can't hold a candle to the arguments the Jews might have had for doing that. I mean, we don't have very good theological arguments for not remaining as Christians or compromising our Christian faith. The Jews didn't have very good ones, but at least they were theologically oriented. And what the author does, he blows even those arguments out of the water. Well, now I'm going to use the all-fourth-yory approach on you. If they were indicted for weakening in their faith and compromising when they had what might appear to be theological reasons to do so, how much more will we be indicted when we don't even have that today? In our next lesson, I promise to try to get it done, I want to especially get to the climax of this whole passage, which you might look over and pray about tonight, verse 25. But since Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, what's Jesus doing now? That's the verse, I'll, I'll telegraph over there. That's the verse you need to have in your mind when, Jesus, when children ask questions about what's Jesus doing now? 
when he came to earth and he did all these interesting things, he walked on water, did miracles, died on the cross, rose from the dead. And now that he's gone to heaven, I mean, is he just twiddling his thumbs? And what's Jesus doing now? Children really want to know things like that. I think adults want to know too, but they don't have the gall to ask. What's Jesus doing? The answer is Jesus now is performing the office of the high priest. And since he's made a perfect sacrifice, he is now interceding for us eternally. He always goes before us to the throne of God to see to it that our needs are met. Beautiful verse. He ever lives to make intercession for the saints. That's including every time a Christian falls in some way of sin. Jesus is always bearing up his people. Okay. Guys, I'm going to ask you to close the prayer.